We will uh, continue our journey through Titus 1. If you have your Bibles, open it up to that passage of Scripture again. Just a quick review to get us resituated. It's been a while since we've looked at the text together. We'll pick up the study tonight at verse number 9, but you'll recall that some months ago we started a mini-series that I titled, God's Plan for God's Man. Now this was a look at verses 5 through 9. We're at the end of that now. But it's Paul's directions to Titus regarding what type of a man should be appointed to ministry into the pastorate as an elder in the church on Crete, such that God's purposes will be fulfilled in the church through him. We've said that, based on the text, that man must be above reproach. That's something that, as the text has repeated it, we brought to mind again and again. The man of God, in that appointed role of elder in the church, must be above reproach. These, again, are not optional, but necessary characteristics of a man in that role. He must be of such character that he is not known by anyone inside or outside the church to be doing or uh, to to be engaged in activities that would ever bring reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. So we have to know that man, we have to see him. He must be appointed when we're quite sure that, as best we're able to tell, he is above reproach. We've seen that a man appointed to that office must be, if he is married, devoted to his wife. We've seen that if he has children, he must be committed to leading them in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, opening up God's word to them regularly, disciplining them, instructing them. He must not be marked by arrogance or anger, addiction, abuse, or an attraction to worldly pleasures, that list of A's that we looked at one of the last times we looked at this passage, but rather he must be committed to hospitality, to a love of good. He must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. To say in other ways, God's plan for God's man in the role of elder in the church is that he be an exemplary husband, a faithful father, a spirit-led leader, a model of godliness, and as we'll see tonight, Committed to God's word. We've said all the way through that this man who stands in the pulpit, the one who is appointed to the office of elder, must be to his congregation an example of gospel power transformation so that they, in following him, would be seeing a godly standard to follow and hopefully in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be held accountable to that. We understand that he is not ultimately following the pastor but he is imitating the pastor as the pastor imitates Christ. The people in the pew must also be striving to see the same trajectory of personal holiness in each of their lives as he is seeing in his. Now from verse 9 tonight, what I want us to see is another necessary characteristic of the man of God. Given his responsibility before God, before others, to shepherd the flock that has been entrusted to him for their spiritual care, this man must be committed to God's word. I wonder as we begin, as I guide us through this text, how would anyone know whether you yourselves are committed to God's word? What would that look like? Could you answer the question in the affirmative, are you committed to God's word? If you said yes, 
How could you prove it? How would you demonstrate your commitment to God's word? I wonder tonight if you are aware that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, you also, alongside your pastors, are to be committed to the ministry of the word such that you would be ready to instruct others and correct them when they are walking out of step with the Lord's commands in his word. So there are obvious points of application in this text to my life and Pastor Scott's life, but I wonder, as fellow members of Emmanuel Baptist Church this evening, would you see the significance of this passage for your own life as you seek to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ in holding out his, words, his word to others? I would like to argue tonight that as people in the pew, we are to be regularly engaged in the ministry of the word, demonstrating the commitment that we have to it. So we'll get there. I'll lead us to that conclusion, and hopefully you'll be convinced. But let me set the whole thing in the big picture that we've tried to hold out as we've gone through this letter so far. Remember, if you would, that as Paul opened this epistle in verses 1 through 4, he set about this big picture of how his ministry fit within the eternal plans of God to save and sanctify people for himself. He acknowledged that he was a servant of God. He was entrusted with a particular stewardship of God's grand plan, within God's grand plan to not only save a people, to pluck them from the fires of hell, but also to make them look more like Jesus Christ as the ministry of his word continued in the local church. Paul realized that he had a particular ministry to preach God's word so that people would come to understand the truth and be sanctified through that ministry. Paul would hold out to people who would otherwise perish in their sin the necessity to turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ, to be saved by God's grace found in Christ alone, to follow Christ and to serve others. The ministry of God's word, I hope that we're still convinced of this, the ministry of God's word is crucial, it is central to God's plan to save and sanctify sinners. And that central point is going to carry to emphasize in what I'm about to say this evening. God's word is the means by which God has determined people will be saved and sanctified or made more holy, made to look more like Jesus' son, as God's spirit works in us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That cannot happen outside of the ministry of God's word. The goal of Christians throughout all of the ages since the church began is to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We'll get there in Titus chapter 2 verse 10. That seems to be the central point of Paul's letter is that he wants to see people in the church transformed such that they would take God's doctrine of salvation and put it on realistic display so that the world can see Look at what a God we serve. Look at how we display the doctrine of God, our Savior. So with that significance of God's word established, I want us to look at the text together. We'll read verse 9 and its context. I want us to see tonight broadly that we must have a commitment to God's word. This is a non-negotiable qualification as we look at those appointed to the pastorate and it's not really negotiable for those of us who follow the pastors 
as they point us to Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 9 and its context, reading from verse number 5. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now you'll uh, drill down with me into verse number 9 and notice that the first word is he. That refers back to the character that we're introduced to in verse number 7, the overseer, the pastor. The one that we've already seen and said many times is to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, the faithful father, the spirit-led leader, a model of godliness to those that he shepherds. And we noted briefly in passing before that elders, overseers, pastors, those are terms given to the same ministry role. He's an elder in the church. If you were to read Acts 20, where Luke recounts Paul's last encounter with the elders of the Ephesian church, perhaps you'll recall that you would see, as as one of my uh, professors, Dr. Bowder, points out in his book on Baptist distinctives, the Apostle Paul sent for the elders, there's the first word, of the church at Ephesus. He told them that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers, there's the second, or bishops over the flock, and he instructed them to pastor, that's what they were to do, or feed the church of God. In this text, every elder is identified as a bishop and is given the responsibility to pastor. So when we see that terminology referring to that man in the church, we want to keep them as synonyms, albeit emphasizing one particular role that he has. He goes on to say that Baptists conclude that every pastor is also an elder and a bishop, every elder is also a pastor and a bishop, and if you figured out the next combination, it would be every bishop is also a pastor and an elder. So note his comment that the pastor, elder, overseer is responsible to feed the church of God. Feed the church of God. We even saw that in Ezekiel 34. The use of that language is consistent in all of the epistles. Peter uses it when he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So we see that leading and feeding. That necessarily involves the pastor instructing and correcting encouraging or consoling and protecting as he ministers the word of God among the flock that has been entrusted to him. You'll recall again from Acts chapter 20 that Paul went about proclaiming the kingdom of God. He didn't shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. He preached some hard things. He preached some easier things. But nevertheless, he recognized what stewardship he had before the Lord to lead and feed the church of Jesus Christ, even as he appointed elders to do the same. He knew the ministry of the word was so important. Now see the connection between Paul's ministry and Titus's ministry and all of the ministries of the men that were appointed to that role, having the word of God central to it. This engagement in the ministry of the word needed to continue on Crete, 
as Paul told Titus, this is what you need in the men that you appoint. They need, among other things, other necessary things, a commitment to the word of God. Looking at verse number 9 again, if you'll see it with me, Paul says this man must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must remain faithfully committed to his wife. He must remain faithfully committed to his children. He must remain faithfully committed to pursuing personal holiness. He must also hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Again, this is a non-negotiable characteristic in the man of God. The trustworthy word there, that phrase, is the teaching of the apostles. That is the foundational doctrine that has been laid down by the apostles that has been passed down from generation to generation, that word which came from the Lord himself through his apostles to instruct the church. This is the apostles' doctrine that we read about in Acts 2.42, that which the early church and the true church past that point has devoted herself to learning and teaching. This is, according to Jude, verse 3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a body of doctrine that needs to be understood passed down so that the church can be led well. This is the message, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15, deserving of full acceptance. You take this and you build your life around it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That message and all of its outreaching, life-changing implications is that which we refer to as the trustworthy word. Now, the NIV renders our verse in Verse 9, he, an elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Slight variation there, but it's a trustworthy message and it's been trustworthily or faithfully handed down. Hear with me from our text tonight that there's an absolute necessity for the word of God, for that trustworthy word to be faithfully taught and faithfully preached from generation to to generation. This is, as I've said, a message from the Lord through his apostles that must be handed down through men and subsequently women in the congregation so that from generation to generation, as one faithful man equips another who would go on to equip another, is handed down so that the church is built and Christ builds his church. The man appointed to pastor, elder, overseer, overseer, call it what you will, must hold fast or hold firmly as if to guard what he has to the sound doctrine that he has received from the person that would teach it to him. Would it not then seem reasonable that he would be well instructed, sufficiently discerning, able to tell truth from error, able to tell that which is going to lead into the truth and sanctification from that which is destructive that would ultimately lead people to hell if they fully embraced it. There's a call to discernment here in our text. Now, practically speaking, as your pastors, Pastor Scott and I are responsible before you and ultimately God to study the Word of God as men, workmen that would be approved, rightly handling the Word of God. We want to devote ourselves, our lives, to a rigorous understanding of the Bible and what it teaches so that you are fed, you are protected, so that you grow in godliness, so that we grow in godliness. We must take care 
to ensure that what we study, what we teach, falls within the boundaries marked off by the Bible as biblical orthodoxy. I would say, perhaps, definitely, we're going to preach within the confines of Baptist tradition, too. We're a Baptist church. We believe that what the Bible teaches gives rise to Baptist conviction, and that's what we're guarded by as well. We want to learn from theologians of the past. We want to learn from theologians of the present to make sure that we are guarded in what we understand and subsequently what we teach. We must hold firm to the message that we received from those who taught it to us so that God's trustworthy word goes forth from the pulpit. Well, someone says, why? Why why all of this fuss about teaching this specific thing? Why not let a man teach anything he wants? Why not just bring some random person in off the street, any old Bill, Tom, Dick, or Harry, who just wants to give a message of encouragement? Why not let a man teach anything he wants, whatever draws the biggest crowd, whatever fits with the popular psychology of the day? What's the big deal? Well, according to our text tonight, unless a man is prepared to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, he is not qualified to lead in the church, so he must not compromise in that area. He must be teaching and preaching biblical doctrine. Whether he does this, whether he holds fast or not, impacts whether he faithfully fulfills his ministry of the word as a pastor, as a bishop, as a overseer. We'll see that as we look ahead in verse number 9. He, says the text, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. We've dwelled on that so far. Here's the reason. So that... He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now notice that phrase, so that, in verse number 9. As part of that big plan that God has to save and sanctify sinners, God's man, the one appointed to the eldership, must hold God's trustworthy word fast so that, there's a reason, he would be able to firstly hold it out for instruction and sound doctrine, to build up the church and hold out correction on the other. If people start to go astray, he needs to be able to bring the word of God to bear so that not only is the church built up, but it's corrected in its error. Keep that big picture in mind as we think about how Paul recognized his picture or his piece in the big picture. Can God's plan to save and sanctify sinners through the ministry of his word, proceed as he has designed if a man is unwilling to hold fast sound doctrine? No. He needs to hold fast that sound doctrine. Can that ministry, can that plan come to pass if he is unwilling to instruct people in sound doctrine or correct those who contradict it? No, this is a both and. He takes what he has received and he faithfully stewards it to hold it out. He holds it fast and he holds it out. Elders must be committed to holding fast God's trustworthy, transforming word. And this ministry requires him not only to hold fast to the word of God, but hold it out. There are two aspects of that as we've already alluded to. Firstly, the elder must be able to give instruction in sound Doctrine. The sound doctrine is a term there. It refers to healthy doctrine. That body of teaching, that what we teach, that which we teach, that promotes growth in godliness. 
Those who come under the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, are going to grow in grace as the ministry of the Word does its work. By God's design, instruction in sound doctrine by the faithful pastor leads to the spiritual growth of the whole body as each person comes under its influence and begins to say and do the things that the Lord has called each of us to say and do. So see here the warning that comes from recognizing that devastation that comes when a church leadership starts to stray from the truth. Think of the error, the destruction that can come in to the congregation, either from the pulpit or perhaps as undiscerning people are attempting to hold out the word of God to one another, but getting it wrong, going off into worldly wisdom here, there, and everywhere. But recognize the danger that comes in a church when sound doctrine is not held out when a man gives instruction in sound doctrine. Shy away from this little truth over here, mix this other truth with some worldly wisdom, and over the course of time, watch the church wither and die. Hear that warning from our text. The truth matters. Discernment matters. The man of God must be committed to God's word, holding it fast, and holding out sound doctrine. We should expect to hear lies. We should expect to hear falsehood and error in the world. It's tragic when it enters the church. And not that we've arrived in the church. Every one of us is learning and growing in grace. We're all learning. We're all students of the word of God as we pursue Christ-likeness. But it's really tragic to consider how the pulpit many times is the source of that problem that divides the church, that splits the church, that causes it to wither and die. It's tragic as people are not led toward the truth and greater godliness, but away from it into error and destruction. So we see that not only is the man of God required to instruct in sound doctrine, but he's also got to be ready to correct the error that appears. He has to be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, if we were to go on and read the next two verses in this letter, we would see a characterization of people who needed just that corrective ministry. Verses number 10 and 11 say, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So the men Titus was to appoint as elders would be ministering in that environment. False teachers, People leading people into error, preaching and teaching for shameful gain, following after the lusts of their own heart, that which they ought not to teach. The false teachers, according to verse 11, needed to be silenced. More generally, in verse 13, we see that there were people in need of sharp rebuke because of the error that they were leading people into. We go back to that big picture all the time to keep us grounded in what God's plan for the church and its leaders are. The ministry of God's word is to see transformed people transformed to the glory of God. 
It's no surprise then that Paul is directing Titus to ensure that the men he appoints to ministry can not only instruct in sound doctrine, but rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke those who would ever preach for shameful gain, cause people to go off into error. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it easier to teach sound doctrine than to rebuke those who contradict it. This is where the fear of man can grab at us and we succumb to the temptation to shrink back and just shy away from that necessary truth to hold out because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want people to talk about us behind our backs. We don't want to feel the sting of a rebuke in the opposite direction if that's what we need to hear. But according to our passage tonight, this is a necessary ministry as God transforms people through the ministry of his word. A man appointed to the ministry must be willing to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. We don't really like rebuke, do we? We don't like that word. Maybe it's because of the environment in which we live, the culture that says, no, you can't just disagree with anyone in general. There's this adversity to disagreement. And rebuke is necessarily to disagree with someone who is contradicting sound doctrine. We've been so conditioned by our overly sensitive, all-in-spirit-inclusive, uh, all-inclusive spirit of our age that we don't like that notion of correcting. But what if someone's spiritual health is at stake? More significantly, what if God's glory is at stake because someone who represents Jesus Christ is walking outside of sound doctrine. Our text calls the man appointed to eldership to be ready to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. That is, according to one lexicon, he must be ready to sternly admonish those who oppose sound doctrine. There doesn't seem to be anything light in that definition. A stern admonition. If we understand that biblical concept of admonition, it's taking the word of God to the people of God and laying it on them in a convincing way, showing them the error of their ways, trying to appeal to them the change for their good and God's glory. But this faithful pastor will bring a person to the point of recognizing his wrongdoing and seek to convict and convince him to change, as another author describes. Obviously, we ask the question, what standard is he appealing to? We know our Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. That's this rebuke aspect. We're using the word of God to bring conviction in people as the spirit of God works because it is sufficient to bring a person to that position. It's profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. But for our purposes tonight, it's profitable for that ministry of rebuke. The spirit works through the faithful elder who opens up God's word to those who need to grow in grace. Rebuke isn't something uncaring. Biblical rebuke is not unloving and harsh. Let me say that again. Biblical rebuke is not unloving and harsh. It's not something done in arrogance or unrighteous anger. We've already seen that the word of God guards against those attitudes in verses 7 and 8. Biblical rebuke must not be given with the screaming and pointing of fingers, that holier-than-now, self-righteous kind of judgmentalism. That is not biblical rebuke. The person rebuking you in that way needs to be rebuked themselves. 
Rebuke should likely be one of our least favorite aspects of ministry when we consider that the person needing rebuke is ensnared by sin. God's glory is being disregarded when we see someone who needs rebuke. How our, trans- how our minds will be transformed if we recognize that our ministry is ultimately for God's glory and the transformation of sinners who may need at that moment in time a rebuke so that they might turn from the error of their ways. It's accompanied by an impassioned plea, as we've said, with the opponent's best in mind for God's glory as first and foremost. Brothers and sisters, the ministry of rebuke is absolutely necessary if we're going to grow in grace. Now we see in Titus's ministry context, with so many false teachers running around, it's imperative that those false teachers are rebuked, that they're corrected, that the people that they are influencing are also guarded from error. This is why Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Two things that he's to keep watch on. Keep watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Notice the connection there that is made between the life of the pastor, the teacher, and the doctrine that he holds firmly to and holds out to others, and the people that they influence. As goes the teacher, so go those who are taught. Those who contradict sound doctrine, especially in leadership, in Big roles of influence need to be rebuked at times. Remember what we've said as we've looked at verses 5 to 9. Let's expand our thinking on this ministry of the word and being able to give instruction in sound doctrine, rebuking those who contradict it. The man appointed to the important ministry of leadership in the church, as we've said, must be above reproach, faithful father, Exemplary husband, all of these other character qualities that distinguish him as able to hold out God's word because his character undergirds that ministry. It's obvious that he needs to be well instructed in the things of God, in the sound doctrine that he's to hold out to others so that the church is built up exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ would have the church built up. But I wonder if we see that broader perspective where we take his knowledge of the word and doctrine and keep close at hand as a package deal the requirement for him in being able to live a life that is being transformed by the same word that he holds out to others. What he holds fast and holds out should be theologically precise. It should not be corrupted by the wisdom of the word, the world. It should be in conjunction with the word that came from God. But it should also be forming his life if he is able to give instruction in sound doctrine, as our text says tonight. Just test that with me for a moment. Let's walk through some practical examples of what happens. If sound doctrine, if the passage that that man is preaching and teaching exhorts toward marital fidelity, to say that men love your wives 
Don't go running around with other women. And yet he himself is studying at the coffee shop, flirting with the women that are there. How does his life undergird the doctrine that he's teaching? It doesn't. If another man repeatedly explodes with arrogant anger when someone opposes something that he is trying to teach them, then how does his character undergird the pure word that he's holding out to them when it clearly tells him to patiently endure evil, correct his opponents with gentleness? It doesn't fit, does it? There's the character of the man and there's the commitment to the word of God that come together to make him able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Let us not think that he just ought to be able to, hold, to handle the word of God well. Men are only qualified for the pastorate if all these conditions are met and maintained. Yes, yes, I know, says the person on the search committee. We've been without a pastor for four and a half years. We need some direction. We would agree. We need a pastor. I know this guy that we've been looking at has a hard time loving his wife. His children are out of control. He gets angry a lot when you contradict him. I, I know those, I, I know, but, but look at how he opens up the word of God. He makes it so practical. It just comes alive when he explains it to us. He'd be a perfect fit for our church. We love the word of God. Now let me ask you, based on what we're hearing from Titus chapter 1, is that a safe conclusion? Is that a godly conclusion? How does the man's character correspond to his commitment to the word of God? <clears throat> the question we need to work through is, how else could people on Crete or anywhere else be transformed for God's glory if those appointed to the leadership are not held to the standards that Paul gives to Titus, including being committed to the word of God? Now, I want to bring this to a conclusion. We've seen what the text says and hopefully what it means. But how does it apply to our church, where we are today? We're obviously not looking for a pastor. If we were, this would be especially instructive as we've seen. Let me suggest that there's a very direct application to Pastor Scott and I, to which we need to be held accountable. But there's also a very valid point of application for those of us, all of us at some point, who sit in the pew it's very obvious how this applies to those in the pastorate. We are to watch our lives and our doctrine. We need help doing that. We have blind spots. I have blind spots. But this text is clear. I need a commitment to the word of God. It needs to be shaping my life. This all aligns with God's plan to save and sanctify sinners as his trustworthy word goes forth from the faithful man of God. And let's not forget what we've said tonight about rebuke. Sometimes as we're ministering the word in the confines of the church, in our personal conversations, not only is instruction and sound doctrine necessary, but so too is rebuke. Given our responsibility before God to shepherd the flock of God entrusted to us in the roles that we have as your pastors at Emmanuel Baptist Church, we must be committed to God's word. We must hold fast to and hold out sound doctrine. I think that's a fairly obvious point of application. We need to be held accountable to that. But what about those who are not pastors? 
What about those of us who sit in the pew week after week who might think, this really isn't for me. This doesn't give any direction to my life tonight because we pay you. We ask you the deep theological questions. We look to you for spiritual wisdom and guidance. And I would say, amen, we gladly serve you in that capacity. If you hold the view that you're not responsible to minister the word of God in a similar way, then I'd like to lovingly oppose your point of view tonight. Every one of us listening tonight who names the name of Jesus Christ has a responsibility to hold fast to that which we have received and hold out God's trustworthy word as a necessary part of the great commission received from our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, elders, pastors, overseers, lead and model these things in the church. We set the spiritual direction, so to speak. But listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and be thoroughly convinced tonight as we think about how our text applies to us that those in the pulpit and those in the pew are to be committed to God's word. Pastors certainly have that equipping role. Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 16 is very clear about that. But the faithful ministry of God's word is something that as believers we are all called to. Jesus says in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Did you see that term? Teaching to observe all that I have commanded you. You and I, as disciples of Christ, those who have received that commission from the Word of God, are to be faithful to learn the all that I have commanded you as the Lord reveals it in his word. That all came from the Lord. It has been dispensed through his apostles, inscripturated for us in our Bibles. We're to learn it. We're to hold fast to it. We're to hold it out to others. This is the trustworthy word that we're to hold firmly to and hold out to others, even being willing, may I say, to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, is this the pastor's ministry? Yes. But according to the Great Commission, according to what we've just heard from the Lord Jesus Christ, is this not our ministry? This is the ministry of the Word. Yes, it's our ministry. So think about that now. In preparing for that important ministry... What plan do you have in place to take in sound doctrine on a regular basis that you might be equipped to hold it out to others? Are you drinking in sound doctrine, discerning truth from error, holding it fast, and holding it out? I am aware that not everyone's a reader. Everyone learns in a different style. Everyone has been fearfully and wonderfully made with very different preferences, very different abilities. But nevertheless, if we're Christians, the same obligation to learn sound doctrine and hold it out to others. Every week, we have at least four formal opportunities to learn the Word of God. We've got two preaching services, we've got Sunday school, and we've got a Wednesday night Bible study. As you are able... 
Are you faithfully attending those things to learn sound doctrine? Our congregation itself, just think of the people that you fellowship with on a weekly basis. This is a gold mine, let me tell you, of spiritual wisdom, spiritual maturity, of doctrine that is being transferred from one generation to the next. Are you tapped in to Emmanuel Baptist Church and the ministry of the word that occurs here? Let me ask that in a different way. Maybe this will hit home, strike, uh, strike a nerve. Do you know the fundamentals of what you believe as a Christian? The fundamentals of the faith. We think in terms of categories many times, and we can categorize what we know, what we should pass down from generation to generation in the study of systematic theology what the Bible teaches in broad categories about salvation, who Christ is, who God is, what the church is, what the end times are all about. Those are categories within the headings of systematic theology. And perhaps maybe we neglect that because we don't want to seem too heady, we don't want to seem too irrelevant. But are you familiar as you study the word of God, as you fellowship with others and seek to encourage others along the way with the basics of your faith as they fall under those categories? Do you know the biblical truth about who God is and his plan of salvation? Could you articulate that to others? Do you know who Christ is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do when he returns? Do you know what the church is, who she should be made up of, what her mission is, and what difference that makes to you? These are all categories. These are all part of the body of doctrine that we've received that we need to faithfully hold out to others. Let's press on in learning and growing in the basic building blocks of our faith. If you're not learning those things, may I lovingly urge you to do what you can with the means that you have, according to the abilities that God has given you, to learn and pass those things along. Let's take that further. Yes, we want to fill our heads with knowledge, but we don't want to leave it there as knowledge. We need to know what to do with it. When you get that phone call on Thursday afternoon and the bottom falls out of life, what difference does Christ make? What difference does the church make? What difference does eschatology in the end times make? Are we growing in our ability to articulate what difference doctrine makes in our lives? Are we able to spot errors in what we're teaching one another, lovingly rebuking one another to correct not only what we believe but how we're living in light of what we believe? Every one of us, as God gives us the ability, needs to be studying God's word, drinking it in, living it out, teaching what it means and how to live it, and correcting those who stray from the truth. We've said this, we as your pastors certainly have the responsibility to lead and guide and equip in these areas. Believe me, we love to do that. You want to talk doctrine? Let's talk doctrine. That is a glorious pursuit We don't just fill our heads. We want it to transform our hearts. We want to look more like Christ. But that can only come as we hold fast to the truth and hold it out to others. So may the Lord find us faithful to be living with that commitment to God's word, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that we may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. And here it is, to rebuke those who contradict it. Not just the pastors of Emmanuel Baptist Church, but those of us who also sit in the pew. May he give us a thirst 
and the strength to be committed to God's word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have given us this word to us tonight, this important consideration that those who lead your church must have a commitment to God's word. God, we believe that your word is true. We believe that it is sufficient for equipping us for that task. We've even said tonight that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof or rebuke, for correction and for training and righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, the servant of God would be fully equipped for everything that you've called us to. God, we hear our call tonight to be well instructed in your word, to hold fast that which has been delivered to us, because we recognize again that you are transforming souls as we hold fast to it and hold it out to others. Lord, we want you to make us faithful to the calling that we have. In whatever capacity that you've given us to do that, we recognize that Not everyone is made the same. Not everyone has the same abilities. Not everyone has the same preferences, even for how they might learn. But we live in an age, Lord, and we're so thankful for this, that so many resources are available. God, we're so thankful to have your word in so many languages, so many different translations, books that we can read, podcasts that we can listen to. God, we ask that you would equip us. Bring us to the point where we're thirsting for your word always. We're so thankful that you've already done that in us. Keep us faithful to the task of being committed to God's word. We are thankful that you've given us this word of direction, of correction. Lord, we ask that you keep us faithful to obey it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.